Hi there, welcome back for another episode of the Mind Your Liberty podcast where we're looking at liberty, what it is, why you should care about it, and how to defend it. Today is Friday, June 25th, 2022. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm trying to get an episode out before the end of the month so I can keep my promise to myself. I had some material drop in my lap, got a headline in my email from the Epic Times, Supreme Court rules New York's concealed carry gun law is unconstitutional, recognizes right to carry in public. This uh, article by Matthew Vadum over at the Epic Times. The Supreme Court voted 6-3 to three on June 23rd to strike down New York State's draconian concealed carry gun permitting system on constitutional grounds, recognizing for the first time a constitutional right to carry firearms in public for self-defense. The ruling is a sweeping victory for Second Amendment gun ownership rights and may help to undo restrictive gun control laws outside New York State, possibly including so-called red flag gun laws, which allow the confiscation of guns in certain circumstances with limited due process. So this decision from the court is excellent news. This decision is overshadowed by the even better news that Roe v. Wade got overturned finally by the Supreme Court. But I was reading through the opinion that was issued in this case uh, on the gun rights, and I, th- I enjoyed it so much I thought I'd share it with you guys, use this to get my June episode in. So like any good news source, the Epic Times linked directly to the article. I'll link to it in my description down below, too. They, excuse me, they link directly to the document, the opinion. It's actually a PDF. So I'm not going to read this verbatim. I'm going to leave out some of the legalese, the reference numbers and the statutes and all that. And I'm actually only going to cover the syllabus. And there's a note here at the top it says, note where it is feasible, a syllabus or head note will be released as is being done with connection in this case at the time the opinion is issued. The syllabus constitutes no part of the opinion of the court that has been prepared, but has been re- prepared by the reporter of decisions for the convenience of the reader. So it's not exactly what Justice Thomas said in his majority opinion, but they, they cleaned it up for our consumption, which I appreciate because I looked down at the 135 page opinion and it's, it's just crazy legalese, statute numbers, revisions, court cases out the wazoo. So I appreciate them making this available because this is only about 20 minutes long. If you got 20 minutes, follow along with me. I think you'll learn something. Learn something about the context of the case. Learn something about the context and the history of our Second Amendment rights here in the United States. And I'm going to stop and make some comments here. As I go through it. So it starts out. Supreme Court of the United States. Syllabus. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Incorporated, et al., which I looked it up, et al.'s Latin means, and others. V. Bruin, Superintendent of New York State Police, et al. Cerciorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And that word, Cerciorari, I didn't even know how it was pronounced a second ago. I just looked it up. It's C-E-R-T-I-O-R-A-R-I, Cerciorari, and it means a writ or order by which a higher court reviews a decision of the lower court. So that's exactly what this is. Supreme Court's kick is uh, overruling what the lower court had already decided, and it had been appealed, and now we're up to here. And they take some time here to give some introductory comments. Uh, The state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm outside his home may obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver if he can prove that proper cause exists for doing so. According to New York Penal Law, and it gives a number, 
An applicant satisfies the quote, proper clause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Petitioners Brandon Cock and Robert Nash are adult, law-abiding New York residents who both applied for unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on their generalized interest in self-defense. The state denied both of their applications for unrestricted licenses, allegedly because Cock and Nash failed to satisfy the proper cause requirement. Petitioners then sued respondents, state officials who oversee the processing of licensing applications, for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging that respondents violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights by denying their unrestricted license applications for failure to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed petitioners' complaint, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Both courts relied on the Second Circuit's prior decision in Kalashki v. County of Winchester, Westchester, which had sustained New York's proper cause standard, holding that the requirement was, quote, substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest, end quote. So that was their kind of introduction to the background of the case. Now, here's where the synopsis of what they're holding, what their opinion is, held. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. And just uh, aside here, so the Second Amendment obviously is in the Bill of Rights. The 14th Amendment, if you're not familiar with it, maybe you are, that is where the doctrine of the incorporation doctrine came from, where basically, and it's still hotly debated on, there's people on both sides, but basically incorporation doctrines is, holds that the Bill of Rights is applicable to the states. So all the rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights are guaranteed to the states. The states can't infringe on them. That's not the way it was originally written. Originally, the Bill of Rights placed limits on power on the federal government. It wasn't for the states. And then the 14th Amendment, I'll read it here, actually st- says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states, state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privilege, privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. That's the important part here. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That was ratified in 1868, Reconstruction Era. And that is where we get this notion that the Bill of Rights is applicable to the states. So that's how they're saying that it's uh, because New York is violating something that's guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, they're violating the 14th Amendment. So getting back to it here, A, in District of Columbia v. Heller, and McDonald v. Chicago, the court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Under Heller, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct, and to justify a firearm regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Now, I wish, this is me talking again, I wish there was no historical tradition of firearm regulation. I think it's disgraceful. I think they got a lot of good in here, you'll see, where they're saying we're going back to the Constitution. But why 
Why should we worry if there's a historical tradition of firearm regulation? What if we did have a historical regulation history of firearm regulation? I think we should just go with the Constitution, but I'm not right in this opinion. One, since Heller and McDonald, the courts of appeals have developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with a means and scrutiny. The court rejects that two-part approach as having one step too many. Step one is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text, as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support a second step that applies means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history. It did not invoke any means in test, such as strict or intermediate scrutiny, and it expressly rejected any interest-balancing inquiry akin to intermediate scrutiny. 2. Historical analysis can sometimes be difficult and nuanced, but reliance on history to inform the meaning of the Constitution text is more legitimate and more administratable than asking judges to make, quote, difficult empirical judgments about the cost and benefits of firearms restrictions, especially given their lack of expertise in the field. And they're quoting McDonald there. Federal courts tasked with making difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of, quote, intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures. While judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not the deference that the Constitution demands here. The Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. That's quoting Heller. Sounds like I need to go read Heller, too. Sounds like that's a really good opinion, too. That was the one a couple years ago, I think. Three, the test that the court set forth in Heller and applies today requires courts to assess whether modern firearm regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. Of course, the regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction generation in 1868, but the Constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those the founders specifically anticipated, even though its meaning is fixed according to the understanding of those who ratify it. See United States v. Jones. And I would also say, uh, who was it? Samuel Adams in the letter, uh, what was it? The Massachusetts Circular Letter. We covered that one a few months ago. He said, in all free states, the Constitution is fixed. And... If you listen to the Tenth Amendment Center, listen to me, hopefully you'll find out. Obviously, the right way is what he says here. To the according, It's fixed according to the understanding of those who ratify it. So what do you got to do? You got to go back and look at the ratification debates and see what were they arguing about. How did they understand this passage? Back to the passage here. Indeed, the court recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. To determine whether a firearm regulation is consistent with the Second Amendment, Heller and MacDonald point towards at least two relevant metrics. First, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense, and second, whether that regulatory burden is comparably justified. Because individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right, these two metrics are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. That's quoting MacDonald. Quoting Heller. MacDonald was quoting Heller. 
To be clear, even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. For example, courts can use analogies to, quote, long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings to determine whether modern regulations are constitutionally permissible. That said, respondents' attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law lacks merit because there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the island of Manhattan a sensitive place simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York City PD. Having made the constitutional standard endorsed in Heller more explicit, the court applies that standard to New York's proper cause requirement. It is undisputed that petitioners Cock and Nash, two ordinary, law-abiding adult citizens, are part of the people whom the Second Amendment protects. See Heller. And no party disputes that handguns are weapons, quote, in common use today for self-defense. The court has little difficulty in concluding also that the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Cox and Nash's proposed course of conduct, carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. Nothing in the Second Amendment's text draws a home-slash-public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, and the definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry. Moreover, the Second Amendment guarantees, quote, an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and confrontation can surely take place outside the home. Amen and amen to that. The burden then falls on respondents to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Again, so sad we even have a tradition of firearm regulation. To do so, respondents appeal to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. But when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. Again, quoting Heller. The Second Amendment was adopted in 1791, the 14th in 1868. Historical evidence that long predates or postdates either time may not illuminate the scope of the right. With these principles in mind, the court concludes that respondents have failed to meet their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. Letter I. Respondents' substantial reliance on English history and custom before the founding makes some sense given Heller's statement that the Second Amendment codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. But the court finds that history ambiguous at best and sees little reason to think that the framers would have thought it applicable in the New World. The court cannot conclude from this historical record that, by the time of the founding, English law would have justified restricting the right to publicly bear arms suited for self-defense only to those who didn't demonstrate some special need for self-protection. Little I.I. Respondents next direct the court to the history of the colonies and early republic, but they identify only three restrictions on public carry from that time. While the court doubts that just three colonial regulations could suffice to show a tradition of public carry regulation, even looking at these laws on their own terms, the court is not convinced that they regulated public carry akin to the New York law at issue. The statutes essentially prohibited bearing arms in a way that spread fear or terror among the people, including by carrying of a dangerous and unusual weapons. Whatever the likelihood that handguns were considered, quote, dangerous and unusual during the colonial period, they are today the quintessential self-defense weapon. Thus, these colonial laws provide no justification for laws restricting the public carry of weapons that are unquestionably in common use today. Little triple I. Only after the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791 
did public carry restrictions proliferate? Respondents rely heavily on these restrictions, which generally fell into three categories, common law offenses, statutory prohibitions, and surety statutes. None of these restrictions imposed a substantial burden on public carry analogous to that imposed by New York's restrictive licensing regime. And then they break down those three categories. Common law offenses. As during the colonial and founding periods, the common law offenses of affray, or going armed to the terror of the people, continued to impose some limits on firearm carry in the antebellum period. But there is no evidence indicating that these common law limitations impaired the right of the general population to peaceable public carry. Statutory prohibitions. In the early to mid-19th century, some states began enacting laws that proscribed the concealed carry of pistols and other small weapons. But the antebellum state court decisions upholding them evince a consensus view that states could not altogether prohibit the public carry of arms protected by the Second Amendment or state analogs. Surety Statutes In the mid-19th century, many jurisdictions began adopting laws that required certain individuals to post bond before coming, carrying weapons in public. Contrary to respondents' position, these surety statutes in no way represented direct precursors to New York's proper cause requirement. While New York presumes that individuals have no public carry right without a showing of heightened need, the surety statutes presumed that individuals had a right to public carry that could be burdened only if another could make out a specific showing of, quote, reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace. And that's a Massachusetts state statute number, they give the number. Thus, unlike New York's regime, a showing of special need was required only after an individual was reasonably accused of intending to injure another or breach the peace. And even then, proving special need simply avoided a fee. In sum, the historical evidence from antebellum America does demonstrate that the manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulation, but none of these limitations on the right to bear arms operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. Little Roman numeral four. Evidence from around the adoption of the 14th Amendment also does not support respondents' position. The discussion of the right to keep and bear arms in Congress and in public discourse as people debated whether and how to secure the constitutional rights for newly freed slaves generally demonstrates that during Reconstruction, the right to keep and bear arms had limits that were consistent with the right of the public to peaceably carry handguns for self-defense. The court acknowledges two Texas cases, English v. State and State v. Duke, that approved a statutory reasonable grounds standard for public carry analogous to New York's proper cause requirement. But these decisions were outliers and therefore provide little insight into how postbellum courts viewed the right to carry protected arms in public. Little Roman numeral 5. Finally, respondents point to the slight uptick in gun regulation during the late 19th century. As the court suggested in Heller, however, late 19th century evidence cannot provide much insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. And I'd just like to say, there's a lot after the late 19th century into the 20th century that contradicts the Second Amendment, so let's get rid of it too. Maybe it's on the way. Back to it. In addition, the vast majority of the statutes that respondents invoke come from the Western territories. The bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permitting public carry. See Heller. 
Moreover, these territorial laws were rarely subject to judicial scrutiny. And absent any evidence explaining why these unprecedented prohibitions on all public carry were understood to comport with the Second Amendment, they do little to inform the origins and continuing significance of the amendment. See also the Federalist, number 37, page 229. Finally, these territorial restrictions deserve little weight because they were, consistent with the transitory nature of a territorial government, short-lived. Some were held unconstitutional shortly after passage, and others did not survive a territory's admission to the Union as a state. Roman numeral, little Roman numeral 6. After reviewing the Anglo-American history of public carry, the court concludes that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. Apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions, American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal defense, nor have they generally required law-abiding, responsible citizens to, quote, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community to carry arms in public. Okay, now back up to subheading C. The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees, quoting MacDonald. The exercise of other constitutional rights does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers some special need. The Second Amendment right to carry arms in public for self-defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. And that concludes the syllabus, and it goes into the actual different opinion, opinions. It says, uh, Justice Thomas delivered the opinion of the court, in which Roberts and Alito and Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Alito filed a concurring opinion. Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion, which Roberts joined. Barrett filed a concurring opinion. Breyer filed a dissenting opinion. Sotomayor Kagan also joined in that dissenting opinion. And then it gives all the opinions, which I'm not going to read. That's that's from page 7 to 135. Don't have time for that. But I learned a lot of the historical context of this and the case law and stuff like that. Just reading through that syllabus, I hope you guys learned something. I hope you enjoyed me reading it. Maybe you were able to listen to it on your ride to work or during work or something like that. Now, admittedly, this is a rarity. You know, trusting the federal government to limit the power of the federal government is a losing strategy. That's how we got into this mess. The fact that the Supreme Court's been on, you know, been using the power and the coercion of the state maybe to help us that we like the way they're ruling is no excuse. We've got to decentralize. We've got to start exercising our rights, resisting the first encroachment of tyranny, oppose a disease at its beginning, Obsta principius, as uh, John Adams said, nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud. We've got to nip it, as Barney Fife would say. Michael Bolden on the Tenth Amendment Center podcast, or the, uh, what's it called, the Path to Liberty podcast, he's started saying recently, and I like what he said, resist first, vote later. Resist first, sue later. Resist first, amend later. That's really what we have to do. We have to realize that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And if people aren't willing to exercise their rights, then, well, it's kind of like that old saying, you don't use it, you lose it. 
Now, I don't want to waste your time with a bunch more of my commentary. I just got off work. I'm tired, ready to go to sleep, probably just start rambling on and being boring. Figured it was at least beneficial to read you the syllabus from the Supreme Court of the United States. Figured at least you can learn something there. But I will leave you with a parting quote from Noah Webster. He said, Before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed, as they are in most every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword, because the whole body of the people are armed, and constitute a force superior to any bands of regular troops that can be, on any pretense, raised in the United States. A military force, at the command of Congress, can execute no laws, but such as the people perceive to be just and constitutional, for they will possess the power, and jealousy will instantly inspire the inclination to resist the execution of a law which appears to them unjust and oppressive. I'll give you a few more quotes. Uh, This one from George Mason, Founding Era. Forty years ago, when the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised by an artful man, Sir William Keith, who was governor of Pennsylvania, to disarm the people, that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should not do it openly, but to weaken them and let them seek gradually by totally diffusing and neglecting the militia. George Mason also said, Who are the militia, if they be not the people? I ask, who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people, except a few public officers. But I cannot say who will be the militia of the future day. Oh, if you could see us now. But you get the idea there. The founders intended everybody to be armed. They intended, actually, as a way to not have to have standing armies, because they all knew standing armies were the enemy of liberty, because... From armies proceed debts and taxes, which are the known instruments to bring the many under the domination of the few. That's quoting, I think, John Adams. I'll leave you with one more. Richard Henry Lee. To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. So, maybe we should celebrate. Go take your kids shooting this weekend. Go take your kids shooting next week. Do some celebration. Again, I understand this ruling, this opinion. They're not rulings. They're opinions. People call them rulings. I'm even in the habit of calling them rulings. But they're not rulings. They're opinions. That's all they are. But I understand it's overshadowed by the Roe v. Wade getting overturned. Praise the Lord. I'm excited about that. That's an answer to prayer. We've got a lot of work to do. Maybe I'll do an episode on that sometime. But I wanted to get this out here. Hopefully it was a benefit to you. Hopefully you learned something. If you did, tell someone about it. Send it to someone so they can listen to it on their way to work, so they can be informed about this case. Because no doubt, people are going to be up in arms. I don't know. Depending on what state you live in, you might hear people talking about stuff they don't know what they're talking about. But you do now. You've listened to actually the entire synopsis or syllabus of the opinion issued the other day by the Supreme Court. So... Share it with somebody, like it, and until next time, remember to mind your liberty.